There is no way we're going to get through all the material tonight, and that is a-okay. You guys are going to go through it on your own, and the Spirit's going to teach you still, so that's great. So uh, let's go to page 235. This is more on koinonia and the kingdom. In the last two sentences on page 235, koinonia takes on a new dimension, on new dimensions, new possibilities, and new richness as churches relate in the wider circles of the kingdom. This is the same way that love works. So jump on over to page 237. And we're going to go through point number seven here. And there are some scriptures, some ideas to the scripture. We're going to do a little bit of a group exercise where we try to identify where we see koinonia uh, and the effects of it then in the church. And he gives us an example in the book of, uh, of this and, and shows us how it's played out. So the young church in Jerusalem, it says, On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to trust in Christ. We do not know how many of these remained in Jerusalem after the Jewish feast was over. We know, however, the Jerusalem church had many members. Early on, they met in the temple courts and in smaller groups and in individual homes. They met for daily for teaching, fellowship, meals, and prayer. They shared their materials, material resources with any believer who had a need. So these small congregations were interdependent because of Koinonia. They were of one heart, uh, one in heart and mind. So that's what he identifies as their act of Koinonia and then, uh, and then the result of it. So... Here we go. I'm looking for volunteers. Jerusalem shares with Antioch when the gospel began to bear fruit among the Greeks in Antioch. The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to investigate and help the young church. When Barnabas saw God's activity there, he enlisted Saul or Paul to come to help. Together they remained in Antioch teaching the new converts. So where do we see Koinonia there? We do see it there. We see it one other place right before. Okay. That is, that's, I didn't pick up on that one. That's good to you. Uh, one other one. Good. So he they identify, yeah, where is God moving and where, where do we need to go to partner with him? So I'll give you a little hint. It has to do with churches working together. So it's the church in Antioch seeing that there's a need in Jerusalem. Uh, sorry, vice versa the Jerusalem church see that there's a need in Antioch because it's a young church and they need a teacher, somebody to teach them and to train them. So that's why they send Barnabas. So we see Koinonia there, literally the church globally working together in fellowship with one another saying, hey, there's a need in Antioch. Let's send Barnabas there so he can teach them, uh, teach the new converts. Good. Okay, Antioch provides for needs in Jerusalem. Uh, so word came to the church in Antioch that their Christian brothers and sisters in Judea were suffering from famine. Because Cornania, uh, of Cornania, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. These churches were not totally independent. 
They were bound together by their common koinonia with Christ. They cared for one another's needs from their love for one another. So kind of already points it out, but where do we actually see koinonia here happening? Specifically within the, the passage that's listed. Right. So there's this principle in Scripture uh, when it comes to giving. This idea of um, giving in the New Testament looks different than giving in the Old Testament. Giving in the Old Testament has to do with the first tenth, right, the tithe, uh, and then anything extra, the offering um, that would have been given in addition to the tithe. Giving in uh, in the New Testament, though, looks a little bit different. Giving in the New Testament is when you bless somebody spiritually, or when somebody spiritually blesses you, you give to them monetarily to support their ministry. Uh, and literally that's to support their livelihood a lot of the time. So what we see is the way that the early church deals with the elders and the elders were the pastors is that they would reward them through finances uh, for their for their for what they gave. If the pastor or if the elder was doing double duty by teaching and doing administering or something else of that nature, then they would be given double the reward. When um, Paul writes, I think it's to the Romans, uh, and he talks about imparting onto them some sort of spiritual gift, being the gift of evangelism, he's not talking about um, going in, like preaching the gospel to them because he's writing to a church. They're already saved. He's talking about teaching them how to, uh, teaching them how to share the gospel. So he's teaching them uh, what it looks like to share the faith with other people. So his spiritual gift that he wants to impart onto them is he's training them in how to teach the gospel. And what he asks for in response to that is that they would give monetarily, not to him surprisingly, but to the church in Jerusalem. And so there is this this uh, principle in the New Testament when it comes to giving of when somebody blesses you spiritually, you give monetarily. So the church in Jerusalem identifies that Antioch is in need. And Antioch, as they receive Barnabas and his teaching, they then respond to the church in Jerusalem by saying, you sent us somebody who's blessed us spiritually. We're not going to give back to you financially because you're in need financially. So there's this mutual sacrifice that's happening there of we see a need, we're going to go and we're going to address the need. They say, oh, wow, thank you for blessing us. We see that need that you have, and now we're going to go and give to your need. It's a little bit of what I was talking about earlier where God is calling the global church to interact with one another to care for each other. So such a beautiful thing. Antioch sends out Barnabas and Saul. The church at Antioch was missions-minded, sharing Christ's heart for the lost world. One day while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after that, they fasted and prayed, and they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The church at Antioch had freely received leaders, and then they freely gave, their, uh, gave them for the advancement of the kingdom. Notice Barnabas and Saul, Paul, had already been called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Saul's conversion uh, and call had occurred um, several years before. Only in the midst of the body of Christ did they come to know the right timing for their missionary work. God spoke to them by the Holy Spirit and through the church. Don't be afraid to trust God in your church to help you know God's will and his timing for your kingdom assignment. So koinonia here. What does koinonia look like in this example? Wonderfully said, yes. So we see the koinonia with the spirit uh, of the church being sensitive to the fact that, well, we've been blessed with these two guys, but they have another mission. So them actually being able to discern with Paul and Barnabas, 
hey, you guys have been blessing us here, but we now need to send you out because this is your cause to go to the other Greeks, to the other Gentiles. And so what Koinonia then looks like for Saul and, uh, Paul and Barnabas is by trusting the church and saying, we are in fellowship with you and we trust that you are in, com- you are in fellowship with the Spirit. And so we are trusting that as you send us out, that, uh, that this is actually what the Lord wants for us. And we see something here that's a little unique for us, at least in our culture, where uh, a lot of the time American missionaries are American missionaries or missionaries, period, because they believe that they're called to go. Uh, what we see here, though, in Scripture is that sometimes people are sent. Uh, mi- the church chooses their missionaries and says, we believe God wants you to go, so we're going to send you. Um, and so it's a little bit different from what, the way that we oftentimes operate. Oftentimes it's us saying, I think I'm supposed to go, and then the church sending out, as opposed to the church saying, we're going to send you out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, such a such a different thing and such a beautiful picture too of again this coin in the air that's happening. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. Barnabas is like the uh, one of the the guys in the New Testament, like one of the the lead guys leading the charge. Actually, yeah. Yeah, uh, and and yes, Paul does end up writing. I'm sure Barnabas wrote letters as well, but they're not canonized. Um, we don't have them. Um, I would imagine he would have as one of the, the leaders in the church, but we don't have evidence of that, um, at least not to my knowledge. Jerusalem helps maintain sound doctrine. When a dispute arose about the nature of salvation, Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem for consultation. The apostles, elders, and church in Jerusalem helped to settle the dispute. Then they sent out the two of their own members to the uh, to the church in Antioch to instruct, encourage, and strengthen the Gentile Christians. So we're basically seeing the same thing happen again here. Um, but there is, I love, the the Jerusalem Council is, is such a beautiful picture, too, of, like, the church not just leaving it up to one person who makes a decision. Um, though I believe it's ultimately James who kind of says the final word on on what the doctrine is going to be. James was also one of the key leaders in the church, specifically in the church in Jerusalem. Um, but uh, they do come together as a council. It's not just left in one man's hands the church comes together and they decide. So in Koinonia and fellowship together, they decide doctrine, key doctrine. Other churches cooperate for kingdom purposes. Throughout Paul's letters, we read about ways that the church has cooperated with other Christians for the kingdom's sake. And then there's some examples listed there that you can check out. Um, I want to read the story that Blackby lists here on page 238, just because it's encouraging, I think. Uh, So right above experiencing more of God, it says a small group of Christians felt burdened for the inner city of a major city and did not know 
of any of the other evangelical churches that were reaching that massive district. God led some of them to quit their jobs, raise their own financial support, and by faith start a new church in that area. After they had begun, it was announced that a mega church was going to sponsor a new church in the same area and intended to invest massive financial and human resources in order to build the church quickly. When the small church heard the news, rather than fearing the competition, they rejoiced. News that God had motivated a second church to reach the same area confirmed God truly wanted to reach that vast population for Christ. The little church raised funds to fully equip the church's, the second church's nursery. They even asked to place the second church in its budget, even though it was not in their denomination and had far more resources at its disposal than the original church did. The small church's burden to reach the people of that community led them to invest in the ministry of the second church. Every time someone came to Christ in the second church, the people in the first church could celebrate that another person had been added to the kingdom of God. How beautiful. Like that is, that is us being church, doing church, not fearing what's the church going to down the street. Are they going to take from our congregation? Are they going to take from our members, but rejoicing in the fact that people are being saved uh, all these other places. Uh, the idea almost being that the more churches we have, the more opportunities we have to reach the gospel. Um, yeah, I have a I have a friend who had the vision of reaching, uh, I, I want to say there's 200,000 college students in like the Yorvalinda, Anaheim, Fullerton, Brea area, 200,000, I think is right, college students. And he, as a college pastor, wanted to reach these 200,000 students. Um, and then he had just people who, uh, had gone to work at other churches and, you know, he, it wasn't like what he pictured. Um, and specifically one of his key leaders going to be a college pastor at another church. And he said, that's not exactly what I pictured. I didn't picture, you know, losing my own leaders, uh, and having them go off and be college pastors at other places. But, um, Little did I know that, that was God's plan for reaching the 200,000. And so he quickly shifted his mentality to acknowledge, well, God is calling people, you know, giving me this passion to reach 200,000 and giving other people this passion to reach 200,000. It doesn't just have to happen through my ministry. It can happen through our ministry together as a church. So such an encouraging thing. Uh, when I was doing student ministries here, we took a, a spring break trip where we partnered for four days with different churches and uh, one of them was Kindred, one was Vineyard Anaheim, and one was a church in Orange called Zion. We spent two days at Zion. And um, we just went to their churches and we said, hey, what do you need done? Um, and Kindred needed us to spread mulch in their gardens. And Vineyard needed us to clean their, their air duct vents uh, or like the, the grates on the ceiling because they were looking to get... Um, accredited or something i think they're already accredited but uh they were looking for something with with the state of california and so they were trying to clean up and and so we went and we cleaned those and we spray painted them to um to look nice and new and then we went to another church and we helped paint their skate park and they were launching a skate ministry and it was just such a beautiful thing to see um our students here at this church being willing to take spring break to go and serve the other churches in the area um I wish that we did more of that. You know, I wish that the body of Christ was more unified and more going after the same thing and, and more willing to bless one another. Um, I think that that is exactly what we're called into as we've been talking about tonight. This is, uh, when we do this, we, we get to experience more of God. Literally we're experiencing more of the body of Christ. So we're experiencing more of who he is. 
uh, we are getting to experience more of his image. If you think about it this way, each person, we all reflect the image of God. Uh, that's not new knowledge to anybody. But if we are fully ourselves, um, then we more fully reflect the image of, of God. Um, so like I shared, some of my insecurities, um, one of my, my other things is that for years and years I had been told by people, important people in my life, that I was too sensitive. And so I tried to actually s- shut that off in my heart. I tried to shut off my sensitivity because it seemed to be something that was not a not something that people accepted in me, but something that people rejected. Um, and just part of my journey of working through my insecurities, what God showed me is, Nathan, when, when you are not uh, that way, when you try to shut off your sensitive heart, um, you're actually shutting off a gift that I've given you. And so consequently, you're not actually fully reflecting the image that I desire to reflect in you. And so you're cheated of, of reflecting my image. I'm cheated of getting to have my image reflected in you. And other people are cheated from getting to experience my image in you. And so when you are who I created you to be, um, then you fully reflect me. And so as we learn to do that, as we embrace our image, the image of God that is that is in us, and as we then go and we, we are unified with the body of Christ, um, we are also different and we all express to a certain degree a different aspect of God's character. And so as we get to know more of the body of Christ, as we partner with the body of Christ, as we're unified with the body of Christ, we literally get to experience more of God through one another. Can you, I'm sorry, Doug, we're almost out of time. Can you uh, share it with, yeah, people after? That'd be great. Uh, Let's jump over to page 239. Um, the, The big paragraph there, the first paragraph, Koinonia with God is the basic element of salvation and eternal life. God takes the initiative to invite you into a love relationship. He places his Holy Spirit in you to enable you to live in right relationship with him. No human method or list of steps to follow can maintain fellowship with God. Koinonia with God is an experience of his presence. Although God takes the initiative, you must respond to him in order to most fully or to fully experience his presence. So there is this invitation that God, he's inviting us into, he's chasing us, the spirit is pursuing us. And as we turn to him, we say yes to fellowship with him, then we more fully experience who he is. Page 240, Uh, the number one, big number one down there, we must love God with our total being. This is the first and greatest commandment. Number two over there to the right, we must submit to God's sovereign rule. Um, And then I'm just going to go over the summary statements on the back of page 242. Koinonia with God is an experience of his presence. Koinonia with God is the basic element of salvation and eternal life. I must love God with my total being. I must submit to God's sovereign rule. And Koinonia is only possible if a church is made up of individuals who are willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ and the body of Christ. Number three over there on page 243. We must experience God in a real and personal way. Your koinonia with God is based on your personal experience with him. No substitutes will do. You cannot rely on personal experience of your spouse, your parent, your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, or your fellow church members. Your koinonia with God must be real and personal. And I want to ask us this question too. Uh, Do our spiritual disciplines actually prevent us from experiencing God? Are we so caught up in the religion of reading our Bibles, of praying in the right number of hours or minutes a day, of serving people, of fasting? Are we too caught up in that to actually experience God? Or are those things doors that we walk through into intimacy with the Lord? 
Those are important things for us to ask, especially um, if we are in our disciplines and we seem to still be experiencing some sort of separation from him. That's something that's worth asking. God, are this, is, is what I'm doing simply religion to me? Am I expecting these things to transform me? Or am I looking to the spirit to transform me? Because it's not a spiritual discipline that's going to transform you. It's it's the person of the spirit. It's, it's, it's the person who's going to transform you. The spiritual disciplines simply open us up to that person. Same thing with our expectations, our worship preferences, or the genres that we care to listen to for worship. Do those things prevent us from opening up to the Lord? Um, if, if our expectations aren't met in church or uh, in Bible studies that we're a part of, do our expectations prevent us? Are our expectations realistic? Are our expectations rightly placed? Does God want us to have those expectations? These are all things that we need to consider. Or has your church, uh, the church that you were brought up in, did that maybe prevent you from really being able to experience God? That's also something worth, worth considering because certain doctrines might have actually quenched the spirit in a certain aspect of your life. And so is there some correction maybe that the Lord wants to make? Jump over to page 244. Number four, we must completely trust in God. Uh, Israel struggles with this time and time again, and they are really a picture of us as well um, in in this regard uh, that they look to other nations, they look to human kings, uh, they look to idols and they find that the uh, they they believe that these things are going to bring them deliverance, but they find that they don't, and consequently, it's it's their their uh, um, apostasy. They're turning away from the Lord that ends up leading them into exile. So, placing your trust in anything other than God breaks your fellowship with Him. Here are some examples of things that you can be tempted to place your trust in to accomplish God's work instead of trusting in God. These being yourself, your abilities, your resources, other people, their abilities, their resources, programs or methods, manipulation or coercion, pressure, tactics or guilt and deceit. Jumping down there uh, right right above nine, that paragraph. Yes, God will call you to join him. Yes, he will ask you to do things through which he will work. Often he will lead you to a program or method to help you organize and function to accomplish what he purposes. He will call you to use your money, resources, skills, and abilities, but in everything you must depend on God's guidance, provision, gifts, and power if you hope to bear lasting fruit. Without him, you can do nothing, just like John 15, 5 says. All right, let's go to unit 12, the verse here on page 248, Hebrews 10, 24-25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the day of the Lord. Page 250. Actually, no, we're going to skip that. Um, this whole idea, this chapter, I'll just kind of give you a synopsis of it, is this idea of, uh, like it says, returning to God, but... Um, Specifically, when we find ourselves, uh, when we are causing some sort of a separation of experiencing God. So um, what he identifies as some ways to continue to, to remain uh, or to abide um, are things like confessing. If you turn over to the summary statements on page 252, confessing and returning to the Lord are good, but prevention is even better, he says. So I'm going to read under point six here on page 251 and then on to page 252. It says, Proverbs 4.23 cautions, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. So guard your heart. 
Our hearts are desperately wicked, and if left unchecked and unguarded, they'll be quickly drawn away from God. Be careful of what you allow into your mind and your heart. Number two, Proverbs 11 and 14 14 advises, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of the counselors, there is safety. So surround yourself with godly counselors who will encourage you and warn you if they see your heart beginning to shift. Number three, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So make every effort to love God with all your being. Loving God is a choice you make. Keep your heart, mind, and soul in a constant posture of love for God. Some people ask the question, uh, why did Adam and Eve sin in the garden? If God knew that they were going to sin, then why wouldn't, you know, blah, blah. Well, love is a choice, uh, and it does end up partially coming down to that. It's just, just this idea that we have to choose to love God. Uh, I would say that we are wooed by the Spirit to loving God, that he pursues us, and, and, and our heart actually, in response to that love, chooses to love him in response, but there's still this willingness, there's a participation that we have in this process. Number four, Jesus also said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Adopt a lifestyle of obedience. Make it your habit to immediately obey anything God says. Obedience brings you into a fresh experience of God working in and through you. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, as I've talked about in weeks past, I'm not suggesting that you stop at mere obedience, but that you, uh, yes, you obey, but that you actually talk to God about your desire to disobey so that you can begin to uncover, not just put a band-aid over what the issue is, not to just say, wow, I really want to be defiant, but I'm choosing not to, but to say, God, I want to be defiant, I'm choosing not to, but why do I want to be defiant? Then to begin to explore that with God. Uh, I'm going to skip the next two sections simply because one's about marriage, and the, the next is about children. I'm actually going to talk about something on children. Page 259, uh, point number two there, it says, talk with your children about God's activity. The reason I wanted to stop here is because Judges 2.10 says, after that, the whole generation, that, uh, that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Uh, this is such a sad, a sad verse in scripture. So I know I'm kind of talking quickly, but... What this is saying here is that uh, there's an entire generation who, when they die, their kids don't know who God is or what God has done. And what we then go on to see is the uh, the sin of Israel as they begin to turn to idols in the book of Judges. And God starts raising up judges to deliver Israel from the, the hands of those around them, from the nations around them. But the parents failed to do what they were instructed to do in the law, which was to teach the kids the law to teach the kids what God had done. When the parents failed to do that, then the children turned to the idols around them. How else were they supposed to know? Uh, and, and so there is this sad reality that, that occurred. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage you parents, regardless of if your children are old or young, uh, to continue to teach them the ways of the Lord. Uh, experiencing God in the marketplace, this is the, the fourth section uh, this is what you guys are doing. I'm assuming most of you. Um, we've talked about this in our evangelism class, so it's probably not incredibly new material to you guys. I'm just going to leave that with you uh, to work through. And this idea of continuing to experience God, he brings up these four points. He says, stay immersed in God's word. Remain intimately involved with a uh, church family that will love and nurture you. Pray regularly. Strive to keep your vows to God, but I'm going to say don't strive, quote-unquote. Uh, 
allow this to come out of your love. And then take time to process what God has said to you or done in your life through this course. I want to leave you, uh, as worship starts, go ahead, you guys can come up. Um, there's, There's a couple of prayers that you can continue to pray, and I've talked about them, I believe, during this course, uh, or you've heard me say them probably at other times. And it's it's this idea of just remaining in a posture of openness to the Holy Spirit. Um, and one way that you can do that in, in terms of your daily experiences is to say this prayer, to ask God, uh, Lord, what is going on in my heart? What's the truth of my heart? Uh, I have, maybe maybe it's when anxiety flares up. God, I feel anxious. What am I honest? What is the honest experience that I'm having right now? Though I can identify this as anxiety, but what's driving my anxiety? Where is this anxiety coming from? And so, just asking the Lord, what's going on? What's the truth of my heart right now? Um, or continuing just to pray a simple prayer like, uh, "Holy Spirit, would you open my heart to you? Would you open my heart to you? Would you allow me to be open to you? To be open to your ministry?" And just this continual posturing of opening. And so tonight as we begin worship, why don't we start out without music uh, just by giving you guys space to simply pray something like that. To simply say, Holy Spirit, uh, would you open me up to you? And then to maybe move into praying about something specific from tonight. Maybe it's about brokenness. We spent a lot of time on that. Maybe God wants to say something more to you. Maybe he wants to love you in an area of your brokenness. Maybe it's one of those sections that I just flew through, but maybe there's a little bit, a little nugget that really jumped out at you that you want to spend more time talking to God about. So just take a minute before the music starts to uh, to just ask, to present yourself to the Spirit, just say, here I am, God. Present myself to you. What would you have for me? <laughs>